This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to a very special What Matters Most. Boy, today's guest is a true icon. He's an American author, motivational speaker, corporate trainer, and entrepreneur. He's also the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has more than 250 titles and 500 million copies in print. That's unbelievable. In 40 languages. He also has a brilliant new book out, The Success Principles Workbook, an action plan for getting from where you are to where you want to be. I loved it. I'm already working on it. What an incredible life well lived. And he is so gracious to make time for us. I just want to welcome someone who's touched my life, Mr. Jack Canfield. Thanks for coming on. Uh, My pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. Jack, in terms of you, is it fair for me to say once a teacher, always a teacher? I think it's fair to say for me. (laughs) I started out as a high school teacher, as you know, and then I became a teacher of teachers and then started training people all around the world in the success principles. So, yeah, I've been teaching. I'm 75, so I've been teaching since I was about 20. What is it in you that feels so compelled to share and teach and help people grow? You know, I don't know. I just, for me, that's who I am. I mean, what makes people want to play baseball? What makes people want to dance or play the guitar? For me, I love watching people's eyes light up from when I was teaching in inner city high school in Chicago and discovered that my students weren't motivated and I became more interested in how do I motivate them than teaching history. And then when they would turn on and get excited and start studying. And today, you know, when I watch people decide to go for their dreams and six months later, I get a email saying that they've written their book or they've become a millionaire or started their magazine. It just, it feeds me. So I just love to do it. I could literally hear you come alive as you talked about it. This is your fuel. This feeds your soul. Were you always into personal growth, even as a young guy? Were you always trying to get better? I always wanted to get better. I I can remember one day in the first grade, I hadn't thought of this in years, I was in the first grade, and there was this, uh, I grew up in West Virginia, it would snow in the winter, and these kids would pour water on the playground and then run and slide on it like like you're, you're skating or sliding. And I would always fall down. So one day after school, I just stayed and I practiced for hours until it got really dark, you know, because it gets dark early in the winter. And the next day I showed up and I, I did it and all the kids went, wow, look at the campfield. And I so there's a part of me that always just wants to improve and get better. And um, when I was a kid, I was a scout leader and I was a president of the youth fellowship in my church. And I went to a military school for a few years as a day student, not a boarder, but I ended up being a captain of a company and teaching the freshmen how to drill. And so it was always that natural teaching part of me. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. And based on everything you just said, and I've been following you for decades, you seem to have a deep innate curiosity that fuels a lot of this, that you just have to find out how things work and how could it be better or, or what's that about? How important and how essential is your curiosity and your evolution? I am. I, I, I literally tallied this up a couple of years ago. I've read over 3,000 books. I've taken, I've taken at least uh, 600 seminars since I was 20 years old. I remember one year I took 30 weekend workshops because I just I was hungry to learn all this stuff. I had never heard of human potential. I went to a lecture and some guy said, we're only using 10% of our brain. And I went up and I said, I want to learn how to use more. 
And he said, well, there's a center called Oasis in Chicago, and you can go there and take work weekend workshops. And so I spent every penny I had, and then I just volunteered to be an assistant and help out and learn and grow. And uh, I've watched, I bet I've watched 500 TED Talks and TEDx Talks, and I just continue to, to learn. I just, I'm curious. I just, I just spent a month in India. And my wife and I were there in Mumbai, and we were there mainly for for a health clinic where we just wanted to, you know, detox and get more young and all that good stuff. But I ended up meeting a man named Dr. Pankaj Naram, who's an Ayurvedic um, doctor who whose teacher lived to be 134 years old, and he's in the direct lineage of the doctor who was the doctor to the Buddha, a guy named Jivaka, who was an amazing Ayurvedic doctor. But the one thing he said was he didn't learn just how to be a doctor. His master taught him everything. And he said, most, this, this was the most important thing I learned from, from being in India. He said, 95% of people don't know what they want. So the 5% of the people who do know what they want, only 3% know how to get what they want. Only 1% of those people know how to enjoy what they got when they got it. And so we, get, we see all these people who become wealthy but their relationships suck with their children or with their wife. They're, they've, 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 what's I say? They've given away their health for their wealth. Uh, one big thing I'm sure you've heard before is you spend the first half of your life sacrificing your health for your wealth, and the last half of your life spending your wealth to get your health back. And so, a lot of people don't really know how to enjoy their life, let alone get what they want. So. I think for all of us, we, we have to be constantly learning. You know, I think Tony Robbins has this phrase, can I, constant and never-ending improvement. And so if you're not learning, as Bob Dylan said, if you're not busy growing, you're busy dying. There is no stasis. So I think that's how I've chosen to live my life. Wow, I really love the way you wove the ancient Buddha text in with Bob Dylan and Anthony Robbins. That's some cool mixture of a smoothie right there. First on what matters most, only you. <laughs> Awaken the giant meets like a rolling stone woven in with Siddhartha and the ancient Bhagavad Gita. I mean, but in, in, in seriousness, though, all these truths are eternal. There you go. There you go. Well, wisdom is universal. The, the, the same truths have been around since the times of the Greeks and the ancient Romans and the, you know, the Indians and the, God knows the Native Americans and so forth. So I agree. And Jack, you really touched the holy grail there because I have friends that are billionaires or movie stars. They're crushing it, but they're not happy. They're not healthy. They've sacrificed everything. And I feel like what's the point if you're not living joyfully and in good health and harmony? Right. I think the purpose of all of our lives is to be happy. And then the trick is to find out what is it that makes us happy? What is it that brings us the greatest joy? As you said earlier, what makes you come alive? Uh, one of the great quotes out there is, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive. And if you do that, you'll meet the needs of the world because we're all programmed. Every one of us is programmed to do something that's needed in life. You know, the people that love to bake, the people that love to do mechanical things, the people that love to sing, the people that love to play music. If everyone did what they love to do, every need in the world would get met. The problem is many of us get talked out of that for you know by our parents, by our schools, by our churches, etc., and then we lose touch with what's really, what really makes us come alive. And then all of a sudden, we're not happy and we're not giving our gifts to the world. 
I'm hearing the echoes of the great Joseph Campbell, one of my spiritual mentors, follow your bliss and you will come to bliss. And I've had over 650 of these shows. And one common theme is do what you love, follow your heart and your soul's passion, and the rest will work itself out. Don't worry about money or fame. Just do your thing that you love. I truly believe that. People often ask me, what's the secret of my success? And I always say, I followed my heart. In other words, I... Yeah, here was Chicken Soup for the Soul doing really, really well, making me multi-millions of dollars a year, and all of a sudden it just dried up in my own joy. It's like I don't think I want to edit one more story of a one-legged climber climbing Mount Everest. You know, it's like the things that should have been turning me on weren't turning me on. You know, And so to give that up and move into a new space was a little scary, but I did it. And, you know, I remember when I was <laughs> I. I had a job at a training company and all of a sudden I decided I wanted to do my own thing and I did it and then that got old. So I think a lot of people hang on to that which is producing the, the income when it's really stopped being fulfilling anymore because they're afraid of not making the same money, having the same lifestyle. Well, that certainly echoes my personal experience, obviously on a smaller scale, but the dynamics and structures are the same. It takes an enormous amount of courage to leave the comfort zone, go into the unknown, be afraid, be unfamiliar, and then pursue growth and your passion. Obviously, you did it, but that's where the riches lie. Yeah. I have this quote in one of my books. It says, everything you want that you don't have is just outside your comfort zone. And so we get stuck in our comfort zones. And there's that other great quote that God or the universe put everything you really want just on the other side of fear. So you had to go get it through and learn through that. Yep. I like that quote, too. You know, it was interesting. I was down in the rainforest. Uh, I think it was in Ecuador with the uh, Achuar living in the literally living in the jungle for a week, and um, one of the shamans said, "You know, the problem with the people of the North, referring to North America, Canada, U.S., is that they're addicted to comfort. And you think about how people just don't want to be cold. They don't want to be. They don't want to wake up early in the morning. They don't want to, uh, you know, take risks and uh, ask people for something or risk rejection. And so, literally." that comfort zone that we're all in uh, keeps us stuck. And, and unfortunately, most people are uh, wondering why they're stuck and they're not realizing you have to get uncomfortable. Oh, that's such a great point. And in a way, it feels like unconditional surrender to the old reptilian brain. There you go. I like that. <laughs> Well, you can use that, and so can anyone who's listening. And you keep alluding to these various travels. How soul-expanding is it for you to go to other cultures and learn and see that there are a million wonderful ways to live and be in this world that all work? Absolutely. You know, every culture has its strengths and weaknesses, but uh, like just being in India and seeing there's such a amount of love in India, such a amount of service, such, such a spiritual country in so many ways. And, um, you know, then you go to Germany, you get efficiency, you go to Italy and you get the coronavirus right now, but, but the, I'm just making a bad joke, but the reality is, yeah, but no, but you know, there's, there's the food, there's the love, there's the passion in, 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 in uh, Italy and in France and so forth. So I, I think, you know, you have to be willing to go out of your comfort zone again. You know, I, I forget the number, but it's only like about 15% of Americans even have a passport and, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be in 100 countries and actually spoken in over 50 of them and ran workshops and so forth. You go to a country like Iran, which I went to twice in the last 10 years, you go to a country you know, like Saudi Arabia or you go to South Africa or you go to the rainforest and you're in a different environment. 
but you learn, and it's exciting, and you, they're called adventures because they truly are. And in the process, you're getting to see and look at your own culture and see where your limitations are and see what you can learn from other people. It's uh, To me, travel has been so liberating. That is so beautifully said. And in your 75 years and circling the globe, Though the differences of culture give us superficial differences, haven't you been struck by, in the end, how we're also the same no matter what? We're just human beings and we're more alike than apart. Or really different. We're really just beautiful souls. We're just different manifestations of the one source who basically want the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody wants the same thing. People want to love and be loved. They want to make a difference. They want to matter. They want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want their children to grow up healthy and happy. Um, you know, every, every culture has people that are crazy and violent and so forth, but 99% of the people around the world that I meet are the same. You know, we all, the spiritual people say we're all really one being, you know, with different aspects of ourselves. And when you can approach people like that, one of the things that we learned in India, I forget the exact Indian phrase, but it's like, imagine everyone who comes into your life unexpectedly is God. Treat them as if God were knocking on your door. And um, we had that experience in India with a dog that just showed up. Uh, we were there for a month living in this apartment, going to this clinic every day. And um, this dog just showed up. And so we said, well, how do we treat this dog like God? And all of a sudden the dog's living in our apartment with us and we're taking it to the vet. To get... <laughs> it's like, it was a stray dog. And, um, you know, we, we, we named it Milo uh, for my love, you know, and uh, it just, it just was an amazing experience. And, and so my wife, who's been somewhat judgmental about a number of things, especially when people invade our property, cause she's more private than, than I am. Uh, all of a sudden, she's treating strangers that show up like, okay, if this was God, how would I treat that person? And it's really changed changed our relationship with uh, with everyone that shows up in our life. To me, that almost sounds like a living, breathing version of enlightenment. And when you were loving that beautiful dog, that animal, isn't that just as powerful as selling a lot of books or speaking to a large audience? It's just love expressed. I think, you know, th there's a lot of places where you receive joy. And I think for me... I get joy out of making a difference. I get joy out of expressing love. Uh, someone once sent me a card that said, the love I send you is secondhand because I experienced it first. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, I, I, that, that's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, my, my life purpose statement is to, ins to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. So when I'm in my joy and when I'm in my heart, and I'm then inspiring people through stories like Chicken Soup for the Soul or empowering people like the exercises and the techniques that are in my new you know, Success Principles workbook, then I'm living my purpose. And uh, that's, everyone has to find what that is for themselves. And, and then once you have that, then you structure your life around that, and then you end up being happy. And in terms of the book that you just put out, I love it. It's very practical. It's very accessible. It's structured. But Jack, why is it so hard for people to find their purpose in this world? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a concept that most people even understand that they have one. Um, so they're, they're not looking for it. If you don't look for something, you can't find it. I think a lot of people, too, don't, they, there's no technique that they've been taught. You know, I, I, in my book, the Success Principles Workbook, I teach three different ways to get in touch with your life purpose. One is called a joy review, where you look back over your life and you say, where have I experienced the greatest amount of joy? 
And I write about a woman who I met who uh, went to the University of Ohio, and she thought she wanted to be a vet because she loved animals. Everyone said, oh, you should go out and be a veterinarian. But she got to the university, and she started doing all the pre-med classes you have to do to be a vet, and she realized she loved animals, but she didn't love biology and chemistry and biochemistry and anatomy and all that stuff. And so she sat down with me and said, well, God, what, what do I really want to do? What makes me happy? And she looked back over her life, and she realized every time she was in a leadership position, she was just ecstatically joyful. When she was the president of the student council when she was in high school, the president of her sorority when she was at the University of Ohio, and you know when she was leading groups of high school students when they would come to the university around tours and everything, she said, oh, I guess it's leadership. I love to be a leader. So she went to the university. She said, I want to get a degree in leadership. And they didn't even have one. Now think about how important leadership is. And there was no degree. And she said, well, can I put together an independent study and study psychology and communication skills and speech making and all that? And they they said, yes. She graduates at 21 and she ends up working at the Pentagon. And by the time she was 24, she's teaching workshops on leadership for people that are like generals and colonels in the military. And she went on to start a leadership uh, foundation for young women. She actually uh, became Miss Virginia and then took the money from that and the year of uh, you know being in her reign, if you will, and started uh, empowering high school girls. And now she has she's written a book and she's she's doing talks to thousands of kids every week, and she's found her purpose. The second thing you can do to find your purpose there's a paper and pencil kind of test that I put in the chapter on uh, discovery of purpose, which is to ask yourself what are two qualities you most love to express. So for me, I said it was love and joy. And what are the two ways you most love it, you most love to express them when you're interacting with other people? And so for me, it was inspiring people and empowering people. Now, for my wife, her top two qualities are spontaneity and authenticity. And so her life purpose ends up inspiring people to be themselves by authentically being my true self. And so if you, if you with my wife, my wife would blow you away. She is like literally what she says is what she thinks, and there's no filters. <laughs> Sometimes I, w- I wish there was one, but there isn't. <laughs> Let's give her a big shout out and score you some major political points. Hopefully she'll listen. But isn't it really true that behind every great man, there's an even greater, more supportive, amazing woman? I feel like this is true. Absolutely. Absolutely. She she makes me laugh every morning before nine o'clock. I swear. She's just so alive and spontaneous and fun. But the last part of that purpose exercise is to ask yourself, what would be happening in the world? if the world was working perfectly according to you. And so for me, everyone would be living their highest vision. For my wife, it's everyone would be authentically themselves. And so you then put all that together, your two qualities, two ways you love to express it, and, how, and, and what that would contribute into the world. And you end up with your life purpose. And, you know, I have like 20 people's life purpose in the book. You can kind of see that. But the point is there are techniques, and once you do that, and you can basically then discover your purpose and start designing your life to fulfill that purpose. That's where true joy and happiness comes from. And you're really giving a classic example and evidence that tools work. I have found that tools work, whether it's exercise, spiritual, meditation works. If you do the steps and you do the process, you will improve in some way. And the book is great with very practical, very pragmatic steps. Do you mind sharing some of them here so people can get a taste of this wonderful text? You need steps, and it, just putting crystals in the north corner of the house won't work. <laughs> I actually have crystals in the north corner of my house. But anyway. Please do that, too. 
I do that too. Look, here's what I found. If anyone teaches anything, whether it's astrology or handwriting analysis or palm reading or numerology or whatever, I'm going to look at that to see if there's any value. Then I'm going to test it. And if it works, I'll use it. And, but, but more practical for the average person are things like this. You have to take 100% responsibility for your life, give up blaming, complaining, and excuse-making. And that was a tough one for me. I, was, uh, I grew up, my dad was a blamer of everybody for why his life didn't work. And I teach a little formula called E plus R equals O. There's events in your life. You then respond to those events, and that produces an outcome. If you don't like the outcomes, the only thing that's going to change the response, I mean, change the outcome is your response to the event. We're living in a recession uh, a few years ago. Some people got really, really wealthy during that recession. Some people lost their homes. It was the same recession. Why did some people do well and other people didn't? Well, they did something different. So we want to study what do the successful people do when they're rejected? What do the successful people do when there's a recession? What do the successful people do when they have an extra thousand dollars? They don't go to Vegas and they gamble if they invest it. And so basically we can study the successful people, which I did. I've studied over about probably interviewed over a thousand people, much like you, who've been successful, but always looking for what are the patterns. So the second thing is discover what your life purpose is. Then take yourself through an exercise to decide exactly what you want. And I look at seven areas of your life, which happen to be your income and your, your financial world, your job and career, your health and fitness, your relationships, what's fun and recreation look like in your life, your personal things like what do you want to own, what do you want to experience, like climb Mount Everest, you know, climb the Great Wall of China, not right now necessarily. But and then also what do you want to contribute to life? And so once you get clear and then you turn that clarity into goals, most people never turn their vision into goals. Goals are how much by when. You know, I want to earn $100,000 a year by this date, or I want to be a millionaire by this specific date, or I want to lose 25 pounds and weigh this much by this specific date. Um, and then you've got, to, you've got to chunk that down into little specific steps. Most people never do that. And then you've got to use the affirmations and visualization. Most people don't do that. Most people are affirming things like, I'll never have what I want. Life's not fair. I can't get rich. Nobody loves me. And so there's a, there's a whole science of that. One of the things I'd learned in India was for thousands of years, you know, all of us now are visualizing our goals and we're doing affirmations. But in India, they were teaching that thousands of years ago in the Bhagavad Gita and, and things like that. And one of the things that this master I met taught me was literally to imagine a white frame above my right eye and then to visualize what I wanted as if it were floating in a white frame above my right eye while I was pressing on an acupuncture point on my uh, right arm, uh, which I won't go into the details of that because it's too hard to explain over the radio. And then literally every day pressing that point while visualizing that. And the stories he was telling about people that had uh, amazingly successful. So we know that these are ancient techniques that the very wealthy, if you saw the movie, the secret, you know, they talked about how this was kept by the elite for a long time. Nobody was teaching this the Masons and so forth. And now it's public knowledge that most people are not even aware of. You've got to take action. I teach something called the rule of five. So we ask you in the book to look at what are five action steps that you could take every day to achieve your goal your goal is to lose weight, well, you can drink more water because we know that that helps reduce the fat and takes the toxins out of the body. You can walk for 20 minutes in the morning, walk for 20 minutes after dinner, don't eat anything after 8 o'clock at night, 
uh, do aerobic exercise for 30 minutes. So there's, there's five things a day you can do. Maybe you make five sales calls. I write five pages a day every day. That's why I have over 200 books published. Uh, you know, um, trying to think of the name, John Maxwell, he writes for an hour every day. It's a discipline. We have to have daily disciplines. And most people are not very disciplined. So whether it's exercise for your body, exercise for your brain, meditation, writing, visualization, um, you know, watching a TED Talk every morning for you know, 12 to 18 minutes, whatever it might be. And then we have to learn to overcome our fear, realizing fear is just fantasized experiences appearing real, F-E-A-R. And so all fear is in the future. Even if there was a boa constrictor in your office right now, you'd have to imagine it biting you in order to be afraid. In order, to, and then that that hasn't happened yet, you know. So even if someone has a gun pointed at you, if you're afraid, it's because you imagine they're going to shoot you, and that hasn't happened yet. And so basically, we learn to replace our fear fantasies with our positive fantasies of what we want. And then you have to ask for what you want. Most people are afraid of rejection, so you have to learn how to reject rejection. And, you know, I could go on, but the point being, you have to have a mastermind group, you have to have an accountability partner. This is a very important piece of research. A woman uh, at, at the university up at Dominican University in, in, in San Rafael, California, she did a study where she found out if people uh, just thought about a goal, they only, only 43% of those people achieved it. If they wrote the goal down, 56%. So 13% increase simply from writing your goal down. I always teach people, write your goals down. Read them every day. Then if you share that goal with other people, now they, they expect you to achieve it. Like, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to become rich. I'm going to finish my book. 64% achievement. And if you have an accountability partner, someone you have to tell at least once a week what progress you've made. So now you're accountable. 76% achievement. And so from 60, from 43 to 76 is 33% increase in achievement. Simple statistics that have been proven over and over and over now with many studies that have replicated this. So we know what to do, uh, but if, if you don't read the books, if you don't do the exercises like I have in my Success Principles workbook, it doesn't happen. And uh, so those are, those are some of the key things that are in the book. As you said, there's worksheets. Like my first book, The Success Principles, just told you what to do. This literally has, it's a workbook. You work through it. If you did one exercise or one chapter a week for 17 weeks, because there's 17 chapters, it's about what, four, four, four months in a week. Literally in the third of the year, you can radically transform your life. I've had people double their income in six months just doing the exercises in this book. Well, and while I like the original book, I really love this workbook because by writing it down and looking at it, I do feel like the book has become for me an accountability partner. I'm looking at the words I've sort of, I feel it's a commitment to write it down. And I'm still amazed by what you said before, the difference if you just even have any idea what you want to do, and then you take these basic steps that it changes everything. And everybody I've talked to who's very successful, I admire these are common traits. This works. Absolutely. And I just encourage everybody. I mean, you know, literally, I'm not doing, I don't need another dollar. I am extremely financially independent. But the reality is, if you really want to take your life to the next level, just go to Amazon.com or BNN.com and, and go ahead and um, buy the book. It's a, it's, a, it's a small investment. I mean, it's about, you know, five Starbucks coffees. <laughs> and you basically could totally change your life. 
Jack, do you meditate? It seems like you have a meditative-based existence. I have to say, of all the things I've ever done and read, meditation and a consistent practice has changed me in more ways than I could tell anybody. I don't think I was a good candidate for it, but no one really is, no mind, but it has been life-changing. I do. I meditate I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes, and uh, I've done retreats where I've meditated every day, all day long for 10 days, the Pasana meditation retreat, but basically uh, 20 minutes a day in the morning. I do something called the Hour of Power, which I write about in my book. It's uh, called 20 Minutes of Meditation, 20 Minutes of Reading Something Uplifting or Educational, like my book, and then 20 Minutes of Aerobic Exercise. And so for me, or actually now I'm doing high-intensity interval training, which is even more powerful than aerobics, but uh, 20 Minutes of Meditation in the morning to set my day, to just be calm, to get whatever insights come, and then 20 Minutes at the end of the day doing something I call the Evening Review. So I'm always working on either a quality or a habit that I'm wanting to bring in my life. Let's say it's how to be more patient. And then at the evening review, I go in into the meditation. I say, show me today where I could have been more patient. And maybe I get a picture of me in bank in the line at the bank. And then I, I, I go like, I wasn't very patient then. Now I go, well, what would a patience look like? And then I actually visualize being patient because as you visualize how you would have liked to have been, how you intend to be because you're designing the life you want to live the way you want to be, then the next time you're in that situation, like in a line at the bank, you've already rehearsed how to be. So 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes before I go to bed. Boy, you're so right on about meditation. For me, stuff still happens. I still react. But when I sit and continue to look at it, I allow my humanness. And then just being able to sit with stuff changes everything. It's changed my life. And then eventually, this too shall pass. I want to throw you a left field question. If the United States government hired you, the Congress and the Senate, and said, hey, you're a great teacher, you're a facilitator, how do we get this thing working again? How can we build coalition, community, and work for the greater good? Now, not everybody may want that, but it just feels broken, and I feel like a real mastermind like you could make a difference. What would you do, Jack? How, what would you teach, and what would be your process? Well, I actually once spoke to the Women's Congressional uh, Congress, uh, uh, whatever they were, caucus, with all the women that were governors and senators and, and congresswomen. And I think the couple of things, one, I would teach them how to listen. Nobody listens to anyone anymore. They're always just rehearsing what they're going to say. They all have their talking points. They're all about trying to make you know their points and not really listening. Second thing would be about win-win relationships. In other words, I know from my own experience that no one ever has the whole picture. If you and I were looking at a beach ball and I'm looking at it from one side and you're looking at it from the other, you'd say the beach ball is white and green. And I'd say, no, it's yellow and, 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 and blue. And the fact is, it's all four of those colors. You were just seeing one side and I'm seeing the other. And so if we can ask, what would be a, a solution to a problem that would meet your needs and also meet my needs? Maybe we have to compromise a little bit. We won't get everything we want. But there's too much investment today in winning and making the other person lose and look bad. And so basically nobody's wanting to solve the problems anymore. You know, we have to be more practical. And so I would say, how do you listen? How do you compromise? How do you find out and care about what the other people want? There was an interesting study done by Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, who started doing work with uh, community organizers and stuff. And he found that it takes about seven days in a room together 
for people to get through the posturing, to get through the I'm important, to get through my idea is the right idea, and start to really hear each other, and then to really work together towards solutions that meet the needs of the community. So how do the African-American teenagers, how do the white kids, how do the sports people, how does the business people, how do the suburban moms, how do they all win? How do we create a situation where everybody gets their needs met? And nobody takes the time anymore to have that level of in-depth conversation. And I think, unfortunately, the other thing I would look at is what is what is your really true purpose? I think a lot of people in Washington, in our state capitals, are too much interested in power and not interested enough in achievement and what we call affiliation and empathy, you know, compassion. And so I would work to help people let go of their childhood wounds and their limiting beliefs. There's a lot of fear in government, fear of not getting elected again, fear of being out of power, fear of being made wrong. Um, you know, and, and be able to willing to tell the truth. We look at how many people have had affairs and like Newt Gingrich trying to go after Bill Clinton and the whole time he was having an affair. <laughs> and so it's like, there's like, and, and get people over the shame of being human. It's okay to, to have done those things. We forgive ourselves and move on. Like you said. Uh, so there would be a lot of different things I would focus on, but those would be some of them. Just a quick moment here to remind you that we are 100% listener supported. So if you go to patreon.com backslash what matters most, you can contribute any size you wish from $5 a month to $100 a month. So if you love the show, if you want to see us do more, support us in any way. Your contribution matters. Much love. Now back to our fantastic guest. Jack, what would happen if we took all the beautiful tools and perspectives in this book and it became a regular part of all school curriculums from an early age that we empowered people and we taught them how to live and conflict resolve, set goals? What would the world look like? What would America look like if every child had a chance at empowerment and a better life and had the ability and the tools to do it? Well, I actually have some schools where the principals and the teachers all teach success principles. And um, and to kids, you know, these are lower income Hispanic kids in Arizona, black kids in New York, et cetera. And the reality is these kids all end up going to college. They get better jobs. They're not dropping out of school. They're taking home these principles to their parents. The parents are starting to say, how about running workshops for us after school? Um, they're, they're empowered. They're self-confident. They're communicative. I was in a school where we we're doing that recently, and this one boy came up and started teasing this girl, and the girl just turned to him and said, Bob, I know you're just wanting to have fun today. I'm having a really bad day, so I really want you not to do that to me today. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. Now, you don't see that in most schools. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely possible. I was on a task force in California called the Task Force to Enhance Self-Esteem and Personal and Social Responsibility. And the challenge is just to train every teacher in California for one day was the cost for taking them out of school and paying them if you going to have them on a Saturday or something like that was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so literally it has to get into our teacher education institutions. It has to be the schools have to see the power of this. We get individual teachers who take workshops and read our books, who go into their schools and do this and become coaches and so forth in their classrooms. But in general, to get a, a system-wide change would take a huge investment in commitment and, and, and money and consciousness, which is happening in some places. There are some universities 
where this was being taught, University of Massachusetts, uh, School of Education, etc. But, but it's still, still fairly rare. It needs to happen, no question. Jack, you're happily married. You have this incredible relationship. What are some of the tools those listening can apply to have a great life partner, exchange, and dynamic relationship, and really with any person? Because if we're not happy at home, we're not going to be happy in life. And if we have better tools and relationships, we're just going to move through the world better. I think you have to treat your home life like a job. And I think most people don't do that. Um, in other words, you have to invest time, energy, and tension and learn, learn the tools and the skills. I mean, for me, I go back to listening again. Uh, I'm a big fan of the five love languages. I think my wife has a quality time. So for her, I have to listen, you know, with eye contact. And so I have to create space every day to do that. You know, um, John Gray's men are from Mars, women are from Venus, very important tools in there in terms of for men to really listen to women. And my quality time is nurturing touch. So my wife needs to take time. Uh, she used to be a massage therapist years ago. So doing that, walking, holding hands, sitting, watching a movie, you know, with our arms around each other, making love, those are important things. If your love language is you know, something other than that, you know, you have to learn that and be able to speak that way. I think investment of time, having date night. You know, we have a date night. When, I, when my kids were younger, we had a family night. And then we had a date night, and then the rest of the time, you know, was just you know living our lives the way you live, normally live a life. But having meals together was a big deal. Um, I think you know making your wife feel and husband feel special. Uh, there's something we call lovernesses. You know, we, we talk about acts of kindness. What's an act of loverness? If I call my wife in the middle of the day and just say hi, I just was thinking you. I just wanted to tell you I love you. You know, the first few times I did it, she said, "Did you wreck the?" Car? Or what, what, what's going on here? You know, it's like, <laughs> it was so out of the blue, you know, it was like when I first learned to do that. Uh, but, you know, things like that, bringing home a rose and just saying, you know, I thought of you when I saw this rose. Uh, another friend of mine did something recently uh, where he made a bath and put rose petals all over the top when his wife came home. He said, I want you to take a bath. I've already made dinner. Um, you know, put roses on the bed, said, I've always wanted to make love to you on a bed of roses. I mean, little things like that. Uh, I think making sure that you do some things that are fun. I think people fall into ruts, especially when they have children. What's new? Like, you know, travel, we talked about that being new. But, you know, can you create surprises? What if once a month you created a surprise, something for your spouse that they weren't expecting? I remember a number of years ago, my wife, booked a massage at a hotel in downtown LA. We were living there at the time and uh, didn't tell me. And then I came home and said, come on, we're going for a ride. We go to the, the we get this massage at the new Otani hotel. And then she says, by the way, we're staying here tonight. She had to pack the bag. So we went up to the room. We had room service. We made love. You know, it was a total surprise. I wasn't expecting it. It was wonderful. And so what can you do? Uh, we talk about creating wow experiences. You know, that your wife would say, you can't believe what my husband did for me. Um, I had a woman, this night, not everything, you know, we, we hear about, um, um, trying to think Kim Kardashian's husband, Kanye West, you know, he, he, he does, he does stuff like he'll buy her a thousand white roses for her birthday. Well, most of us can't afford that. Uh, but there are things you can do, you know, that, 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 that they're not expecting. One of my friends hired a, a football coach, Lou Holtz, uh, called him up and said, what's your fee for speaking? He said, 10,000 a day. He said, oh, great. I want to hire you. She said, who's the audience? He said, my husband. What? 
yeah, he's a big Notre Dame football fan, and you're going to knock on the door at 10 o'clock in the morning. He's going to answer the door. He'll be blown away. Then you're going to go golfing with him, 18 holes at the country club, have dinner with him, and then go to the airport, and that's your day. And you're going to get played, paid to play golf and talk to my husband. Now, most people can't afford to buy you know, that kind of a present for their spouse. But the point being, um, if you're successful in money, you can do it. But there's things you could do. You know, you could just um, you know, take them to a sports bar and watch a football game when normally you wouldn't go there with them, things like that. But the point being, just surprises, I think, are really important, things that engage newness. I mean, even if you just went to a paintball uh, thing, uh, my wife and our, our kids, we did that a while back, and it was so fun. I never would have thought to do that, and um, that was her idea. So those are some of the things I would say. And then be willing to work through the hard stuff. That, that's Most people don't take time to do that. They, they, um, you know, they, if, you, if, you, if you don't share your feelings, they, they build up, and then you build resentment. And then that resentment turns into not, not touching, not making love, to you know, snide remarks and so forth, um, you know, cynicism and things like that. So I think staying current with each other. There's a technique we teach in our family called the heart talk, where I hold this uh, it's a kind of a velvet heart. And uh, it's, a, it's like a beanbag, but shaped like a heart. So when I talk, my wife can't interrupt me. I talk about what I'm feeling, about whatever we're talking about. Then I hand it to her, and she gets to talk about her feelings about it. I can't interrupt her because most people are always interrupting each other. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. What are you talking about? And so we go back and forth. It might take us 30, 40 minutes to talk through an issue like that, but we really get heard. And we also do that in our family. We can have five people sitting in a circle. We pass it around. And uh, at the end of that, in fact, I have in, in the Success Rentals Workbook, there's a whole chapter called Have a Heart Talk. And it talks about doing it at work, it talks about doing it at home, talks about doing it in your relationship. I love that chapter. And again, look at all the energy. And even that night you went to the hotel, you, you still remember it. It wasn't just an anonymous Wednesday. It's a beautiful act of love. Create memories, create moments, create memories. And I hear a lot of respect, empathy, energy, caring, gratitude. By the way, all those qualities are free. You don't have to buy a thousand anything if you keep expressing that, making a bath for somebody. And you just said gratitude, which is so important. I left that out, but I'm, I shouldn't have. But this being thankful for your partner, thanking people for the little things. We start to take each other for granted. And, uh, you know, you know, thank you for making that meal. Thank you for, you know, putting out my stuff. Just yesterday, we're going through a whole different diet coming back from, from India and uh, uh, doing eating a lot of different things. And, and my wife put out all the stuff for something I was going to make. So I came downstairs and there was uh, the oatmeal and the dates and all the little things that cause normally I would do a blender drink, you know, and protein shake. And um, it was sweet of her. And I just, I thanked her for that. Well, what about a thank you card for somebody, you know, uh, if your love language is gifts, which a lot of people it is getting a card, getting a rose, getting a, you know, a letter that says, you know, these are 10 things I love about you. Things like that are really valuable. And in my whole life, no matter where the person was in the totem pole or fame and fortune or whatever in a relationship, has grown tired and weary and feels like they don't like or need any appreciation. No, it's true. It's true. I was just in a workshop recently where a guy said, raise your hand if you feel like you've been appreciated too much in life. <laughs> Not one hand went up. <laughs> raise, your, raise your hand if you don't feel like you've been appreciated enough. Almost every hand went up. So you're absolutely right. You know, and here we are happily yakking along, laughing, and we're hurtling through space in a giant magnet in these carbon forms made from old stars. 
animated by something completely mysterious that's timeless? Are you just blown away by the sheer miraculous scope of our being, the spectrum of existence, the Hubble telescope, or the flower? Are, it's I'm blown away by all this. I know, isn't it? It's pretty wild, isn't it? It's it's and when you think about, it's really simply mind blowing. Yeah, especially when you think about how this all evolved, you know, from little creatures that crawled out of the ocean, and here we are. <laughs> it's too amazing. Now, it looks like you're going to live to be 130 or 40 after going to India and learning from these ancient Ayurvedic gurus. But either way, do you have any fears around your own mortality, your own physical demise, the end of the linear story that someone gave this life form a name, Jack? No, I literally, if I left today, I'd be satisfied with what I've accomplished. I, I still want to do more. It's fun. I enjoy it. Uh, but someone said in India, one of the teachers said, um, he said, you think you want to change the world? He said, just go to the ocean and pee in the ocean. He said, that's about how much one person can change the world. <laughs> You're not going to turn the whole ocean yellow. He said, but, 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 but do what you do because you love to do it. The world needs what you do. And, um, so I feel like I feel very satisfied with what I've accomplished and the books I've written and, and they'll live on, I'm sure. And then, you know, I know that I go on, uh, you know, my spirit will survive. And I, I happen to be a believer in reincarnation only because I have memories of about six past lives that have occurred in seminars and under hypnosis and things where they're as clear as I'm sitting here looking at my desk. And uh, I was a Tibetan monk in a past life. I was a Catholic priest in a past life. I was a German doctor in a past life. And it totally makes sense to me when I think about the things I'm good at in this life. There were previous lives where I was good at one of those things. Like I'm, I pick up easily on healing techniques and medicine. It, it velcros into my brain really quickly. And knowing that I was a doctor in a past life now makes that totally, totally clear to me. And my spiritual work, you know, having been a Tibetan monk and a Catholic priest, uh, was a, I was a, it was a Native American trained to be a shaman, but I wasn't, I wasn't very focused in that lifetime. They were constantly trying to get me to come back and. <laughs> be more focused, but uh, <laughs> I was into too much, just having too much fun. But um, yeah, no, so I believe in that, and, and you know, I love what Abraham says to Esther Hicks. You know, it's just like walking from one room into another room, and I'm not afraid of death. Wow, I'm so glad you shared that, and I have goosebumps all over me, chill bumps. I've had similar experiences. I didn't believe in reincarnation, but I was working with this healer. I was in this very conscious, awake state. And I went back and it blew my mind. It was one after another. There were deep lessons. There was a tranquility and a surrender as I passed through forms as, as if they were costumes. And after that, I never feared or really felt a deep inherent fear of dying physically. I knew that there was more to me, the in-between. And then once I was in France walking around and I totally remembered where everything was, even though I'd never been to this tiny small town, and it really blew away my linear mind. It kind of was unsettling. I was I was in I was in southern France with a woman named Lynn Twist. She runs the Pachamama Alliance. She wrote a book called The Soul of Bunny. If you ever get a chance to interview her, do it. And um, we were we were in a villa with about five couples, and we went to this monastery. And she kept saying, "I've been here before," and she said. I think the kitchen's over there and there's a wine cellar over there. And I think the nuns used to live in there. And then she started remembering these, uh, Latin chants that they used to chant, you know, Gregorian chants. And, uh, and so, and then we, our, our guide said, yeah, that's where the kitchen was. That's where this was. That's where this was. 
So yeah, I, I totally, totally, totally believe in all that. Especially the more you get, in, the more you meditate and get in touch with things, and those memories seem to drip into the, they cross the barrier of memory, if you will. Wow, this has been phenomenal. And really, my big takeaway here, among many, is that it's incredible. It's amazing what you can do with your life if you're willing, you're open, you'll take the steps needed, and you open your heart to the possibilities. And you, as a great teacher, the way you're lifting others up, I feel like your core message is, you shall do greater things than I. Yeah, I totally believe that uh, all of our students should definitely outperform us. <laughs> so yes, I agree with that. Before we say goodbye, and this has been just a gift, any last words for our beautiful worldwide audience? And so many have written in over the years uh, suggesting you. They love you so. Is there anything you want to leave them with? It's just the three of us here, you, me, and them listening. Wherever they may be in the world, we're all connected and we're one heart, one family. Well, I would say there's no reason to suffer anymore. There's there's enough information, whether it's in my book or all the other books that are out there, all the, the seminars that are available, that whatever it is you want to do, I believe that you wouldn't want to do it if you didn't have the capacity to do it. You may have to learn some new things. You may have to partner up with some new people, develop some new skills. But whatever dream you have, you wouldn't be allowed to have it if you didn't have the ability to pull it off. So believe in yourself. Trust yourself, follow your heart, um, you know, avail yourself of the teachings that are available to you and, um, and go for it. There's no reason not to live an extraordinary life. There's just too much information, support, and uh, resources available now to, uh, to not do that. And so it is. And Jack, thank you for spending some time with us today, for reaching out, making it happen here. What a gift you are to me personally and to millions throughout the world over decades. You really are a beautiful light of love in the world. And God bless you on your path. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Paul. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.